Welcome to Cozies and Kettles. This is Megan. And this is Mark. And we finally have some half-decent recording equipment, so hopefully this sounds better than last time. My fear is that this is going to be too quality of a microphone, and you'll hear literally everything. (laughs) All the shifts and moves, which, again, by the way, we are still sitting in those antique rocking chairs to really live up to our cozy... Experience. Yeah. Speaking of cozy experience, what tea are we drinking? Well, you made the tea, but is it a pumpkin spice tea? Um, no, not 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 directly. It is the Trader Here Joe's is. Harvest Blend. I think it's something like that. Yes. Okay. You would think since I made the tea, I would know what it was, but honestly, you're the one that purchases and uh, kind of collects all of our tea. So I just go in and think, oh, this one looks good. I like the raccoon in the front. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a rather cute uh, tea box. I am actually drinking a cup of tea myself tonight instead of a different beverage because it's actually cool outside tonight. Yes, it is starting to definitely feel like cozy sweater weather. Uh, well, I guess let's jump into it. Where's the book? Uh, I had it a second ago. It's right here. Okay. So, uh, to start off with, the book that we are are discussing tonight is The Pumpkin Muffin Murder, (laughs) a fresh baked mystery (laughs) with includes recipes. So the cover of this book, for those of you who haven't read it, uh, Megan, would you like to describe the cover? Sure. It shows a kitchen with a window looking out onto rolling hills of golden autumn trees with some leaves starting to fall and in the kitchen there's a bowl of looks to be some sort of squash pumpkins fall harvest of some sort there's two eggs in an egg carton an egg hanging out on the countertop a bag of sugar spilling out onto the floor with some suspicious footprints and some cracked eggshells on the floor uh, muffins that are either half in or half out of the oven. They look kind of baked, so we'll say they're, like, being pulled out of the oven, but there's no person on the cover, so maybe by, like, a ghost or a phantom. And, of course, there's a kettle on the stove. So looking at that cover, when you when you picked up this book, because this book, this is the first time that we've both read it. Yes. Normally, when you bring these books to us, You've already read the book. You like the book. You're a fan of the book. I'm the one that's experiencing this on my own for the first time, and you're rereading it. This is the first time for you. When you picked up this book, what what was your book by the... You know what? Let's let's, let's do this. We'll call it a, uh, a new segment, Judging a Book by Its Cover. Oh, I like this. So when you picked up this book, what was your first thought? My first thought was something happened in the middle of baking these muffins and maybe there was some sort of altercation and there was maybe like an intruder that caused the altercation and this would be the scene where something went down. Can I see it? So when you handed me this book, I immediately thought this looks just like that first book you handed me. The first book cover that, uh, I don't remember what the name of it. was part of the Down South Cafe mystery. Hold on, I've got it here. Silence of the Jams. So, Silence of the Jams. 
It had a large picture window with a picturesque scene outside. It was a summer scene, not a fall scene, but still. It had various things and various states of being baked. In that case, um, it was a cat that had knocked something off onto the floor, and a dog was eating it. And um, in this case, it's sugar randomly knocked over, flour randomly knocked over, and uh, some odd footprints. But I, I looked at this and thought, this looks almost exactly like that other cover. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to like this book very much. <laughs> so because of that, because it looks so much like the first book, I, I immediately prepared myself for a bunch of relationship drama and a bunch of people talking about things I didn't really care about and a bunch of low-level drama of things like oh no, I cut my thumb while baking a cake. It's awful. Were you excited about this book when you picked it up? Yes. I thought, oh boy, it's another cozy mystery. And it's set in fall. Pumpkin muffins. Oh, it's pumpkin spice season. This is perfect. Are you excited about the book now that you've read it? Not as excited. (laughs) It was true to form. It is a cozy mystery. But it is not my favorite cozy mystery series, and at this time I don't plan on reading more from this series. So I guess that leads into the next section, our our overall thoughts on this book. What are your overall thoughts, now that you've read it and had some time to digest it? My overall thoughts are that it's an interesting cozy mystery book, but it seems pretty dated. I checked when it was published, and I believe it's about 10 years old. Uh, First Obsidian Mass Market Printing, November 2011. So it's 10 years old. And that got me kind of thinking about how they've rewritten the Nancy Drews so many times because they were dated because with new technology. And there is a fun experience of reading something that is a little bit dated or of a different time period and kind of being transferred back to that time. I didn't love any of the characters. I mean, I didn't mind them, but it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I want to read more and spend more time with these characters. It just didn't click for me that way. Hmm. And overall, the ending was kind of rushed. And it was very predictable. The entire book was, I thought, very predictable. It was not that predictable for me, only because it was just such a a mind-boggling series of events that I, I couldn't... You know what, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, my overall impression of this book is it does feel very dated. But even beyond 2011, this book feels like it was written to my grandparents' generation. There were several sections that felt so much like somebody shaking a cane and saying, back in my day, that it make, made me feel... Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, as I pass 30, I'm already starting to shake my cane at the younger generation with their TikToks and their discords and all that. But the centerpiece of this book felt more like somebody lamenting for the olden days instead of actually solving a murder. It... it <laughs> look... I went back and I counted up the number of pages that were actually discussing the murder. Um, Only 170 out of 240 pages were talking about the murder. And when I say talking about the murder, I mean 
related tangentially. Uh, them at the funeral for the guy that was murdered. Them going to pick up clothes for the wife of the guy that was murdered. Um, them baking a turkey while talking about who might have murdered the person. If you if you don't include all that, it's like maybe maybe sixty pages. That's that means thirty percent of this book is about things other than the murder. Thirty percent. Yeah, it's about the characters and creating that cozy community feel. All the events, the Thanksgiving, all the seasonal. It is about all that, but it just it boggles my mind when I read these how much time they waste. And I think that may be part of my problem with these books in general, is that I view that as a, a waste of time. And I think a lot of people love the genre just for that aspect of having that community and that pace and all of that extra. So then why bother with the murder? If all you want is a novel about a whole uh, a, a hometown thing, read um, Garrison Keillor. Uh, Lake Wobegon, or or any of, of the stuff like that where it's literally just stories from old-timey places. What makes you need to have a murder in the middle of that community rather than just reading about the community? Personally, my thought would be that maybe reading about just the community would be too boring, and I like the puzzle part of the murder and who done it, and it has just that little bit extra. The problem is that then that feels like you are taking a murder and you are wrapping it loosely around, or rather that you are wrapping the rest of the story loosely around this murder in such a way that it feels like you've, you've made a very tiny cake and you're just putting the rest of it as icing around it, if that makes sense. Why not just make a, a cake? Um, how would you describe or how would you go about doing it? I don't know. I... The problem is that I don't read many mysteries in general, so I don't have a great, I don't have a great meter for what a, a mystery, well, that's not true. I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes. Holmes does a good job of developing a community around these, these, the, his mysteries. You know about Lestrade, you know about Watson, you know about uh, Irene Adler, you know about all these other people, and you get to feeling for the drama and how things are changing. And you don't really have Sherlock Holmes spending 180 pages not talking about a murder. True. I would say most of those mysteries are short stories. Well, I mean, from what I remember, they were actually originally written as newspaper columns or something like that. What's another good example? What about Agatha Christie? I haven't really read many Agatha Christie's. Would you say that... Agatha Christie's are more to the point about the murder than than these cozies? I think so. But I would also still maybe classify them as cozy. They usually happen in provincial locations and they have a cast of characters. They some of the ones I've read recently have quite a few characters. I think it might be interesting for us to read one at some point for this. Well, if we ever set up a Patreon or something, that can be a bonus episode. <laughs> so, overall, I didn't really care for the book. Uh, that's not really surprising. <laughs> no, I think we had gathered as much. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about our actual ratings at the very end and, and our sum up, but overall, my thoughts were kind of eh. Um, on that front, what were your biggest issues with the book? 
That is a great question. Because let- mine is a page and a half. Well then, let me consult my notes because they are quite a bit shorter than yours. <laughs> oh, by the way, they talk about ducks and duck-related things at least on six pages in this book. I have written in my notes at one point, I don't care about the ducks. <laughs> I think I missed all the duck references. Oh, they were just so... This book was also really repetitive. There was a section where the the author, the not the author, the, the main character, Phyllis, at the very beginning, she talks about how her, her grandson Bobby is sick and then explains to us, the audience, that, oh, now my... Um, my son and his wife are up dealing with this family thing. So Bobby, because he had an ear infection, stayed with us. About halfway through the book, she literally says the entire story again, almost verbatim, just in conversation, to another person who asks, is that your grandson? Why didn't he go with the parents? Blah, 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 blah. And she does that one other time. It just, it blew my mind that in this book, she was sitting there three times explaining the same thing about her grandson. But it was to different people, and I think that's true to life. You know, if we were walking around the neighborhood and came across one neighbor and they asked us a question, you kind of explain what's going on, and then another neighbor asks you the same question, and you kind of have the same spiel, and by the end of the walk, you have a spiel down, and you are used to answering that question. Okay, but, but what you're missing is that true to life is not what people want necessarily because they don't ever talk about how often people go to the bathroom in this book. Are you suggesting that the author is expecting readers to be forgetful? I I wasn't. I mean, that sounds like what you're suggesting. What I was suggesting is that she's a bad writer. Oh. <laughs> we'll get to that. But this, this book made me cringe more than any of the others that we've read so far. Okay, so... I have been selecting these, and they just keep getting worse rather than better. So maybe I should just go in a totally different direction. Well, we'll, we'll talk about what well, we've already picked out the next two books. So we'll talk about those um, at the end. At the end. Okay. So, but let's let's not get distracted. Let's okay. <laughs> biggest issues so, with the book. Biggest issues with the book. I guessed the whole plot of the book. Broad speaking, you know, maybe not all the little details, but pretty much the gist of it on page 49. Okay, when you say broad speaking, are you talking, this is the guy that was murdered, this is who murdered him? Do you want me to read exactly word for word what I wrote down? Please do. Okay, page 49, dash. Guess the victim will be Dana's husband, and he is having an affair with the school secretary, or did, and ended it, and she is with child, and she uses Dana's car keys to kill him and frame Dana or Phyllis, Carolyn mentioning the flirting and Phyllis suddenly helping. So it wasn't totally accurate because I didn't have the right person, but I knew it was someone at Dana's school. I knew who the murder victim was. I knew that the car keys were a big thing. I didn't guess the method, so I didn't figure it all out. Yeah, it sounds like you only had about half. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, uh, you did better than I did on that front. So, biggest issues. So, biggest issues. I think my biggest issue is that I now have like a little mini mark in my head <laughs> when I'm reading these. And some of my notes are like things you have 
kind of been verbalizing about the past books we've read, such as I have a note here that says, page 163, Velvet Sledgehammer. What? Velvet? Always some red, purple, maroon color? Like, I'm just trying to envision what a velvet sledgehammer would be and why there would be such a thing. And it just kind of pulled me out of the cozy world and the experience because I read that and then it was just jarring I was all of a sudden pulled out and I was taking a note and I was like oh my gosh this is Mark's effect on me having discussed these I mean in my defense before we started this podcast I did say are you really wanting to discuss this with me yeah and I'm not upset and you've been doing a great job and I think it's good for me to be maybe more aware critical. and critical have good taste <laughs> whoa whoa <laughs> no not going there i will i will say up front by the way i am going to be a bit more snarky this episode because oh my goodness there's so many things that i just made me throw up my hands in the air and just be be so I, I, a podcast i listen to they talk a lot about book throwing moments because of you know how frustrating the books are that they read. And I had a couple of book-throwing moments with this book. This book, I literally... It took me three days, four days to read it. Because I just... I couldn't read it. I had to put it down and just process through how bad it was. What did you like about the book? I liked the thought of a community coming together around the holidays around Thanksgiving and doing a big community service project for the community and having that be a big focus. I liked the thought of hosting a big Thanksgiving meal and hosting people who do not have anywhere else to be and would otherwise be eating alone. So a lot of those community aspects I enjoyed and it got me thinking how to do Thanksgiving when not in pandemic times. All the tea and muffin talk had me craving lots of tea and muffins. Yes, these books generally do make me hungry. (laughs) Yes, so we may have had uh, a couple of different batches of pumpkin muffins. Oh, don't worry, we're gonna we're gonna talk about those in a second too. Okay, I'm gonna take over. And I'm going to really just... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, because I think the rest of my stuff isn't really, like... The rest of my notes aren't bad or bashing. I'm just kind of like, oh, this is kind of interesting. What are your thoughts on this? Okay, save that for the good part, because, again, we're going to need to come back from where I am. (laughs) Okay, we'll bring you back. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, uh, again, my, my first issue with it is that they spend a lot of time talking about the good old days. She talks about how, oh, I wish... Doctors would prescribe antibiotics for ear infections again. There's a valid reason they don't do that. Yes. She complains about people wearing Bluetooth headsets. Uh, At one point, she she says um, people don't have regular phones anymore. They're only using cell phones. And again, some of this could be 2011. But, I mean, 2011, I I was old enough that I had a phone and phones weren't unusual to me. So that Bluetooth reference actually was what made me check when the book was published. That and the YouTube reference. And those tech references were big clues to me that it was dated. And I think with the pace that new tech is coming out, I think that cozies are going to become more and more dated. 
at a faster pace. And I wonder if that's creating more room in the cozy genre for more books to be published or really what the effects of that would be. So Bluetooth headsets, the first one came out in 2002. So 2011, they've been out for a while. Yes. Now granted, I think 2002 was kind of a, a, a prototype, so it wasn't exactly common. But yeah, I didn't have a cell phone in 2002. How old were you in 2002? <laughs> I was too young for a cell phone. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, I don't think that's a fair comparison. Uh, they... I think my parents had one shared, like, brick phone. Okay, but, like, for example, they mention Dagwood. Dagwood sandwiches. Do you know who Dagwood is? No, I don't. Okay. I know who Dagwood is because my grandfather was was really sweet, and he kept the comics page of the the local newspaper for me. Not none of the rest of the newspaper, but just just the comics. And Dagwood is an old syndicated cartoon about this guy and his wife, but Dagwood was this weird guy, kind of a Homer Simpson-esque character, and he was known for making these enormous sandwiches. And that was why they mentioned Dagwood sandwiches. But I read that and thought, there is no way anybody that didn't grow up reading the funny papers like I did, and that was an unusual thing, would know anything about Dagwood. So did that clue you into the fact that we are not the target audience? Oh, so much clued me into the fact that we are not the target audience. <laughs> it, it really made me wonder who is the target audience. <laughs> oh, they, they talk about the Chamber of Commerce again. What is with these books in the Chamber of Commerce? The first one, the entire plot revolved around the Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce is pretty big in communities. It's a big deal. I... I Local politics. When was the last time that you ever, ever thought, gee, I wonder what's happening at the Chamber of Commerce today? <laughs> Valid point. You have me there. Um, all of the women in this book, almost all the women in this book, are judgy. There is a theme in Cozy's I'm noticing so far where everybody's really judgy of everybody else. Vish Puri mm. was really judgy. In this book, Carolyn and Phyllis and a few of the other ladies are very judgy. Um, Detective Largo is cartoonishly mean <laughs> for for no reason that I could tell other than that just that the, the author thinks, oh, well, the police wouldn't like an amateur detective snooping around because that's a trope that's been around forever. Yeah, that's an overused trope, and I would prefer for there to be more of like almost the opposite where they're like best friends or relatives working together or something. In this book, the actual sheriff, the, the, or head detective or whatever role he played was welcoming of her, her stuff. The male head sheriff was kind of a dopey, don't really know what's going on sort of guy. And he was welcoming her help. It was only the female detective that was so mean all of the women in this book are kind of judgy and mean mm. to some degree. Uh, Carolyn is just awful. <laughs> she says things like, I'm reasonably certain none of her husbands ever married her for her cooking. When she's talking about uh, Sam, the, the Phyllis's boyfriend, she says, I'm sure he didn't take care of his kids as much as his wife did, but I'm sure he's able to do it. And it, it says, it says, and let me, let me pull that up. Page 30. Carolyn's tone took on a slightly caustic edge as she went on. 
I'm sure he didn't take care of them nearly as much as his wife did, but he's bound to have watched them some. The author specifically says her voice takes on a caustic edge when talking about how much Sam was not involved in his children's upbringing. She's petty because at one point, one of the ladies says, Phyllis, I know you're a great baker. And Carolyn clears her throat and makes a stink until the lady says, oh, Carolyn, you're great too. (laughs) Carolyn, for seemingly good reason, hates the cops a lot because apparently she was mistakenly accused of murder at one point. But she, she hates the cops to a ridiculous degree. Phyllis says, I'm, I can't find it right here, but Phyllis makes some comment about a, another woman being too pretty and too thin to be a teacher. She literally says something to that effect. That's ridiculous. What is being thin and pretty, or I think it may even be thin and blonde to be a teacher. That didn't really make any sense to me. So why why do you think that Cozy's people... Because the, the, the audience has to want this. In order for people to continue buying these books, this has to be something the audience wants, or at the very least is okay with. Why are people okay with these people being so judgy? Is it wish fulfillment? Do other people want to be that judgy? I don't know. I didn't really like that aspect of it. Carolyn was not my favorite character. And I did not appreciate some of the remarks other characters were making also. Oh, I found it. So this is talking about, on page six, this is talking about um, the woman who, the wife of the murder victim, Dana Powell. Phyllis liked her well, although she thought sometimes that Dana was a little too skinny and a little too blonde for an elementary school teacher. Yeah, that makes no sense. Like, those... It's, well, it's an old-fashioned view. It's, it's the idea that, you know, all teachers need to be old women so that they can wrap the knuckles of the students with a ruler. Which is so illegal. <laughs> so, I, I'm, I'd, I'd like for you, when we... Maybe next episode, or maybe later in the episode if it comes up. I'd, I'd really like to know your your thoughts on why you think people like this. Why you think people are good with these judgmental characters. Um, but moving on with my, my negatives. Another complaint I have with not just this cozy, but cozies in general so far is... What is it with cozies and not closing stuff when people die? In the first book... Uh, there's a there's a guy that literally dies in the middle of the cafe. They figure out that he died. They take him away. And then they just keep the cafe open. They don't even close as the, the, the murder is being cleaned up. <laughs> it's a show for the community to watch. And in Vish Puri, something similar happens. Somebody's disappeared or something like that, and they just keep going. In this book, a man is literally found in the in a scarecrow costume murdered, or at least dead, probably murdered, because why would he be dead in a scarecrow? Foul play is suspected. They call in the police, they rope everything off, they they do all the correct police stuff, supposedly, and then they're just like, no, the the festival can keep going, we're going to bring all these children around to where this dude was found dead, we don't know what happened, 
we're possibly thinking is foul play. But you know what? Let's just keep everything going and just move on. The only thing they close down is the cupcake contest. And then they still, they still give them back all of their things. And they're like, hey, we found a dude near this. This isn't evidence, though. Yeah, that was the one part that I thought was interesting. The fact that they let the people take home their muffins or their baked goods and trees into the contest when the victim was found with what looks like some sort of muffin in his mouth. Yeah, they literally say, it smells like pumpkin, and then everybody turns to Phyllis and it's like, hey, didn't you bring pumpkin muffins? And she said, yeah, but it can't be my pumpkin muffins. They're all right there. And the police are just like, well, there's too many people. The festival's still going. It'd be a shame to shut it down. So, oh, well, I guess we'll just haul away the dead body and not worry about people coming to any of this. It kills me. I don't understand it. Now, speaking of things that kill me, can you please explain the the murder? I want you to walk me through, not because I don't understand, but because it's the dumbest <laughs> method of murder I've ever seen. I kind of thought it was a little clever. Okay, you walk me through it. Walk me through the murder. So, the victim struggles with keeping his blood sugar at the level it needs to be. And rather than, like, eating and actually taking care of himself, he's always popping these mints that have sugar in them. But he would make his wife, whenever he was in public, make her eat them too with him. And he told everyone that it was actually her her medical issue, not his, because he didn't want to be perceived as weak or sick. No, no, hold on. He didn't tell everybody. He only told the people that he was having affairs with. True. And he used that as an excuse of like, oh, my poor sick wife, that's why I have to be gone all the time to take care of my poor sick wife. That's why I can't leave her to come to you, the woman I'm having an affair with, because she's sick and she has to eat these mints. Yeah, when really he was probably having an affair with, like, four or five of them. We find out that he was having an affair with, like, four or five. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of them, one of the women he's having an affair with, gets jealous and upset at his wife and tries to kill her by swapping out all the mints for sugar-free mint. (laughs) (laughs) And this woman doesn't realize she's killing her lover. Because he's the one who's actually got the health issue. And the reason he has the muffin in the mouth is because she rushes to get the muffin that she stole out of his wife's vehicle when she had the keys and was, like, going through the vehicles, exchanging all the mints. If I remember correctly, I don't... Did she steal that muffin? Yeah, she stole that muffin while she was swapping out all the mints. And that muffin was there because... Dana went to Phyllis's house looking for her keys that Phyllis had borrowed and gave her the muffin and Dana didn't eat it. She left it in her car. And then again, this idiot of a murderer decides, you know what I'll do when I'm trying to be mega inconspicuous and hide these mints and the fact that I've swapped these mints out? I will steal something from this woman's car that she visibly left on the front seat. (laughs) Yes. And then... She panics when she sees her lover dying and realizes 
something must have happened related to the swap with the mints and needing sugar. And so she runs and grabs the muffin, but she gets there too late. So he dies with, like, the muffin stuffed in his mouth. Yeah, she manages to shove it in his mouth and he dies. And then it turns to mush and his saliva and the paramedics find it. And, okay, look. I looked it up. Yes, diabetics can use mints or other sugary treats. Specifically, uh, sugary candies is what the website I found said to help boost their, their blood sugar if they start going into, I think, a hypoglycemic attack. Hyper is too much hypo. Hypo is yeah. too little. And yes, if you're going to a hypoglycemic attack, it can have serious ramifications. But it's a dumb way to kill someone. First off, you're really hoping that they're going to be right at the edge of having a, a, a heart attack or some other major health concern. Because you can... Again, from my like ten minutes of research, <laughs> you can you can survive these things and you can get help. Otherwise, anytime somebody's blood sugar, a diabetic blood sugar, dip too low, then they would just immediately die. It'd be like a cutoff switch. Secondly, so he had to be predisposed to this. Now she assumed the murderer assumed that she was because Logan kept talking up how sick his wife was. So we'll 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 move past that. Secondly. You are really hoping that they won't notice the taste difference. I've had sugar-free and sugar mints, and there's a significant taste difference to the point where you will not eat sugar-free mints. That is correct. So if you pop a sugar, you, you've been eating these peppermints literally your, most of your adult life, and then all of a sudden you pop one in your mouth and it doesn't taste the same, you're going to notice something's off. She's hoping, I'm assuming that she, the person won't, but whatever. Thirdly, how did she find mints that look and taste taste exactly like the other mints. Fourthly, how did she replace enough of the mints that they didn't accidentally grab some real mints in amidst the other mints? That's that's a mouthful to say. In, in amidst the other mints is a lot to say. But they talk about in the book how there are literally bowls of mints everywhere in their house. They mention four of them at least. Did this woman break in or come over when Logan was having her over for sex and replace every single mint in that house. Fifthly, she's going to have to hope that they don't, that they have the attack if they have an attack somewhere without help. Because if the person drops down somewhere where people can call 911, they're probably going to survive it. And then they're going to be like, oh, hey, I thought I was managing my blood pressure. What's the deal? Let's check my mints that I always eat. Oh, hey, these aren't my normal mints. What's going on? Sixthly, she rewrapped the mints in their original wrappers. That's that was a huge plot point. First off, how do you do that? Yeah, are they the twisty? They ones? have to be the twisty kinds. What what kind of mints are the twisty kind that you're going to be carrying around a handful of? That's like butterscotch. That's not mints. Mints, and it literally says they pops the they case. Have some of those like red and white, like the spirally round ones that have the twisty wrappers. So he's just buying dollar store mints and. So she went in, found sugar-free versions of those, looked exactly the same, wrapped them up back up in the casing, and did that for, I'm assuming, what must be hundreds oh, of Oh, yeah. Mints. I was envisioning hundreds because it seemed like both their cars, all his clothes, their whole house. So I'm, yeah, maybe maybe he buys cheap dollar store mints, and maybe those dollar store mints come individually wrapped, and maybe they make an exact same type 
the exact same type of, of thing, just sugar-free. Maybe all of that lines up. But, but the biggest thing is diabetics, generally, because they can die, check their blood sugar occasionally. They've got kits for that. That's what they do. So this guy clearly knows what it's like to have lower blood sugar. Again, he's popping these mints. After a little bit, wouldn't you think he'd be like, oh, hey, I'm feeling a little woozy. Let me go check my blood sugar. Oh, zips out. That's really low. Maybe I should eat some real food and not, well, I wonder why my mints aren't working. Wait a minute. These aren't my real mints. What's going on? True. That is a valid point. You would think he would start having the mints before he got to a critical level and he'd realize they weren't taking effect and he would reach out to another solution, albeit another type of food or call for help or something before he just kind of kills over. In addition to it being such a stupid method of murder, in my opinion, I was blown away by how often everybody talks about it being an amazing method of murder or ingenious. Phyllis calls it an arcane method of murder. What? What? <laughs> she's talking. True. She's trying to relate it to poison, but you can't be like, oh, you know, the grape juice that you were drinking, I swapped it out with grape poison. Ooh. It, it reminds me of the Emperor's New, or not, yeah, the Emperor's New Groove, uh, where Kronk is over there trying to poison Cusco's drink, and then he ends up having to pour them all together. It's just... That is a great scene. It is a great scene. Emperor's New Groove is uh, the best movie ever made, and I, I'm kind of thinking I might start a podcast where I just, every episode is just me explaining why the Emperor's New Groove is the best movie ever made, very enthusiastically. But, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I would listen to it. <laughs> but we're not talking about the Emperor's New Groove. Uh, the, the, she is denied bail. When, when Dana is taken into custody because they assume that she's the one that murdered him, the judge denies her bail because he says the method of murder was so ingenious. What? She swapped out mints for other mints. So ingenious that she will skip town. Yeah. And later, they say in the, the, the courtroom, they say the murder was done in a particularly devious and cruel fashion. You know what else could have done this to him? You know, you know, a grocery run that went wrong. If he accidentally grabbed a bag of sugar-free mints off the rack instead of sugar mints, the same thing could have happened. If and if he murder, was somewhere where he only had that one stash in his pocket, like if, the park. If your murder can also be caused by somebody picking up the wrong bag at a Kroger, that's not a good murder. Or is it because it could be disguised as an accident? Oh, well, we can talk about that. Actually, I wanted to talk about that, too. The The ending of the book is so stupid. <laughs> it was rushed. No, so the murderer comes in, and she brings in muffins. She's like, here are the muffins that I have brought. Look at them. Look at these muffins. These are my muffins. Look at them. Oh, my favorite part was she took one and she t went to Dana. She's like, this is your special muffin. Yeah. I made it just for you. This is your alert, muffin. Please, alert, please alert. no one else eat this muffin. This, this is, is your only muffin. for you, Dana. In front of a room full of people, she's like, this is the muffin for you, Dana. Only this muffin. You must eat this muffin that I made. I, this person, made. It's got my name on the box of the muffins that Please I brought. Please eat this muffin right now. 
all I'm watching. <laughs> and that muffin had poison in it. And her her reasoning, Phyllis is like, here's what she's probably thinking. Everybody else was going to eat a muffin and they were all going to get sick from what was in the muffins. And so she would, the cops would assume, oh, it must have just been a bad batch of something, some bad ingredient somewhere that got contaminated. And Dana just got a particularly strong oomph from it. Do you know what cops are going to do when a murder suspect gets murdered or dies in suspicious uh, circumstances, especially considering food was involved in the last major murder? They're going to test the muffin. Well, and the fact that it's the same muffin because she copied Phyllis's <laughs> recipe. It's just so stupid. And I know, I know, I know. It's I know. a crime of passion. Exactly. She's emotional. <laughs> Realistically, it sounds like the author's like, she's a woman. She didn't get into blah, blah, blah. She didn't think. It's doing it because she loves this man and the other woman made her murder this man. And she's irrational. You cannot tell me that this woman is so ingenious that she invents this method of murder and that it's such a devious and cruel method of murder. And she's this mastermind that hit him in such a way that blah, 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 that she then is like, hey, everybody, watch me murder this woman. <laughs> yes, it's just really strange. It's so And luckily, stupid. Phyllis acknowledges that this is a really strange, weird situation and has already put the clues together that this is the woman who actually is the murderer and warns Dana not to eat the muffin. I don't know who would really eat a muffin if someone is like, creepily, here, I made this muffin just for you. Please eat this muffin and not any other muffin when muffins were used to kill your spouse a few days ago or were used at the time of death. Yeah, I'm looking at the, the page here. <laughs> Saw Jenna handing a muffin to Dana saying, Here, I made this one especially for you. <laughs> and then um, she, she explains a few pages later. I guess my response might be at that point, Thanks, I'm just so stuffed after the meal. I think I'll, I'll wait on it and then try to just... Uh, page 239. It will be if there's poison in that muffin like I think there is. In Jenna's twisted mind, she blamed Dana for Logan's death and she was still determined to kill her. She may have poisoned all the muffins she brought today. She may have been willing to commit mass murder just to get her revenge on Dana. But more than likely, if she put anything in the others, it was just enough to make the rest of us sick without killing us. She might have been planning to eat one herself just to make it look good. That way, when the rest of, it got, the rest of us got sick and Dana died, it would look like a case of tampering with one of the ingredients she used. Things like that aren't nearly as common as they once were, but they're not unheard of. I have two problems with that. First problem is that she says, things like that aren't nearly as common as they once were. How often in Phyllis's generation were people going around and murdering a room full of people? Yeah, that's a little, um... And, and secondly, secondly... <laughs> I was, I I will say, the, the, only thing, the only thing that comes to mind are those very rare mass murder type situations where they have the... Are you talking like Jonestown? Yes. Okay. This isn't a cult. This is a crazy woman who fell in love with a crazy man and tried to murder his wife. A crazy woman who fell in love with a philandering man. <sighs> 
My second problem with this is the simple fact that Phyllis is guessing at the motive. And what we all we really know is that this woman brought a muffin and handed it to the... the it's just so bad. Such a stupid thing. I thought it was really interesting that at the very end, the police come and they sit down with Phyllis and they're like, Oh, Phyllis, please explain this to us. How did you connect all these dots? What happened? Yeah, I, I'm i so tired of the trope of the private detective is so much smarter than the police. Even I get tired of that even in Sherlock Holmes. That's one of the things that drives me crazy about those those stories is that it's always Lestrade coming in and being confused and asking, what happened here? What's going on? Sherlock, you're the only man smart enough to explain this. And in, in this book, in The Pumpkin Muffin Murder, one of the characters literally says on page, on page 139, you are the only one who can find the truth, Phyllis. They literally say, you are the only one who can find the truth. So the premise in this book, just like so many of these detective stories, is the police are incompetent, everyone else is an idiot, the murderer is ingenious, and the only one that can stop them is the main character. And yeah, that's fine for wish fulfillment, I I guess. I mean, like I said, Sherlock Holmes has been popular for a hundred years. But it's just irksome when the final wrap-up scene is yet again, here I am, let's all sit down in a room you know what? who did a good job of spoofing this, in a way? It was Knives Out. I have thought about that movie a few times while we were discussing this book. Like, with the swapping of the mints, I thought about the swapping of the medication mm-hmm. in the vials so that just injected the wrong amounts. Yeah. It was a good movie. It was a good movie. Daniel Craig's accent was awful, but it was a good movie. Okay. I think, I think that maybe all of my bad things. Hold on. Oh, uh, the ending was bad. Like I said, it was very abrupt. It felt like a sitcom ending, to be continued sort of thing. Which I guess they are a series. Yes, the part I didn't really know what to make of. It kind of just seemed thrown in and unnecessary. But I think it is part of the larger series storyline was the roommate or housemate coming in at the end saying, oh, here's my fiancé, this guy I met online that you all haven't ever mentioned before. I brought him to join us for Thanksgiving. Yeah, it says... Phyllis had just picked up the phone when the front door opened and Eve's cheery voice called out, Hello, everybody. I'm so sorry we're late. Roy's plane was delayed. And then mentions the person accompanying her. And then the very last sentence is, Everyone meet Roy Porter. Roy and I are engaged. Do you believe it? We're going to be married. And that's the end of the book. It just, it felt like... One of those to be continued dot dot dot. (sighs) It's very unsatisfying, honestly. One thing I did find interesting was that the author pokes fun at one of the... The author, through the main character, pokes fun at Dolly, uh, one of the oldest characters in the book. I think she's supposed to be 80s. Dolly says, The men will have to buy something to bring, 
uh, implying that that men can't cook. Men can't cook, and <laughs> Phyllis says something to the effect of Dolly comes from a generation where men couldn't cook and doesn't understand that men can do that now, which very much so feels like the pot calling the kettle black when Phyllis is running around going, uh, again, I I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but she basically says, (laughs) not many people have regular phones these days, only cell phones. (laughs) Yes, it's just varying degrees. Is showing the different generations. That's all I've got for worst parts. So, let's let's discuss your other other bits and the pluses that you found. I have two pluses from this book. So I had two discussion questions. Well, actually, so I have three discussion questions. One being, they kind of make this big deal about whether Phyllis and Sam are boyfriend girlfriend or not and what they're calling each other and it seemed very juvenile (laughs) and they were saying oh calling each other boyfriend girlfriend that's so junior high like i don't i don't know it didn't really seem like people dated all that much in junior high or middle school but when when i was there (laughs) Oh, you're waving your cane now. Back in my day, people didn't date before they were 50. Well, no, but, I mean, calling each other boyfriend-girlfriend, I don't think that's reserved only for (laughs) 13-year-olds. I I think people who are older can sometimes feel self-conscious about that. They... Again, I'm I'm not speaking from experience here, but I feel like I've, I've been around enough people who have been in that situation where... It, it does feel like there's a bit of a social stigma to it. There's this expectation that by the time that you're 50 or 60, you have everything figured out. You know who you are. You're settled down with, you know, the person you're going to be with. But you're kind of somewhat established. And you're not just picking back up dating again. There's a reason there's so many movies where it's an older person having to go back out and date. And how funny that is inherently. True. True. Second discussion question. This teacher bond, they seem to put forth the idea that there is this bond between all teachers and they seem to all surround themselves as, with each other and that it's like a little clique of friends, all the teachers at the school, but then all the former teachers that are retired, they all live together in this house. I've just never really thought of such a thing existing well you're a chemical engineer did you not have more of a rapport with other engineers than you did with i don't know uh, sign painters artists yes but i wouldn't call it like a bond and i wouldn't set out to live with only engineers in a senior living home (laughs) that would be a scary place (laughs) it would be it would be a very efficient and well-run senior home. I think I would prefer to live in the senior home from that movie we watched recently about the British opera and musicians. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't remember the title of that offhand either, but I will find that and put it in the show notes and on Twitter as well. Uh, uh, that was an interesting movie. <laughs> Entertaining, yes. And that also is about old people finding love and... Yeah, and how awkward it is. And and they were all also musical people. So again, 
finding their same clique, living together. True. Maybe you are destined, you know, after I kick the bucket at, at 70 to go live in a, a chemical engineering <laughs> luckily, old folks home. Luckily, I don't think such a thing exists. Hey, maybe you'll start the first chemical engineering old folks home. You can, you can hope, right? <laughs> That's an interesting life aspiration right there. So then my third discussion question, grandmama. That just seems like a mouthful. I know there are many different names you can use for your grandmother, but every time she was like, grandmama. I, I didn't even catch that, to be honest. There's so much in this book that was poorly written that uh, a long grandmother name was... Uh, well, so grandmama is three syllables and grandmother is three syllables. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, maybe it's just a southern thing. Perhaps. I'm used to, like, Actually, one syllable. You know what it sounds like? Because it sounds British. It sounds like little Lord Fauntleroy. Grandmama! <laughs> Grandmama, please bring me some more of those mints from the, the kitchen. Not the sugar-free ones. I'm diabetic. <laughs> Grandmama, may I have some more muffins? Yes, Grandmama, please. Also, tell the maid that she did a terrible job of cleaning my playroom. <laughs> you, know, you know, I was making fun of Daniel Craig's American accent a second ago. Our, I, I don't think my British accent was that great. Our accents were probably really offensive, and I apologize for them. Oh. <laughs> so my question to the masses is to let us know your favorites or the ones you personally use or have heard for variations of grandmama. Mm, like Nana or... Gram. Grandma. Grandmother. I think I just called my grandmother's grandmother. I don't know if we had a special name for them. Oh, I had Gram and Gramp and I had Grandma and Grandpa. Mm. No, I think I think I was very formal. I think I said grandmother. <laughs> I, uh, every time I hear that, I think that's so formal. I'm like, oh my gosh. Grandmother. Mm. Maybe I was the grandmama kid. <laughs> grandmother. <laughs> I was. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, so my, my pluses, my, my good thoughts in this is I did get a laugh on the Sherlock Holmes cocaine comment. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read that here real quick because it did make me laugh. Uh, here we go. Sherlock Holmes cocaine, 119. Phyllis didn't like being compared to Sherlock Holmes. For one thing, she thought she'd look ridiculous in a deerstalker hat, and for another, she had no interest in using cocaine. <laughs> Good job, Phyllis. <laughs> Say no to drugs. <laughs> I I read, when, she, when I read, she didn't want to be compared to Sherlock Holmes. Earlier in the book, she talked about how she doesn't want to be a detective. She's not a detective. It's not a thing that she does. So I thought it would be another reference to that. No, it's because she doesn't like cocaine. That's the thing that's being the barrier between her and being a good detective. Cocaine. <laughs> I really hope nobody takes that line out of context. And that's a really interesting line of thinking, considering her son is a sheriff. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's... That's another layer. I think I think the author just doesn't understand Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Honestly, I, I think... Have you ever heard of the Jesus uh, fresco restoration? 
Uh, so the Jesus fresco restoration, I don't remember who did it or even where, I don't remember many of the details, but, which is a terrible way to begin telling the story, but basically there was this fresco painting of Jesus. It's old, old, and it was starting to crack and fade away and they needed to get somebody to come in and restore it. This woman saw the sad state that this was in and took it upon herself to fix it. And it went from looking like a, a cracked and kind of haphazard picture of Jesus because of a lot of the missing paint and you could make out what it was, but it was clearly damaged to what, what <laughs> to a blob, to a Jesus blob. That's what it, that's the only way to describe it. And I, that's what I thought of when I was reading this cozy mystery and all these cozy mysteries. It occurred to me that these books are kind of like that that botched restoration job. They take good things like murder mysteries and Lake Wobegon and things like that, and they they try to patch them together and make them something else, make them look good, and it just kind of ends up all fuzzy and soft looking. It's not great, and it generally doesn't look like the source material, but at least the authors tried. I mean, the woman, all you can say about the woman that tried to fix the Jesus painting is that, hey, she saw a need, she tried to fill the need, she was bad at it, and it looked terrible after the fact, but people got a good laugh out of it and they enjoyed it. It, It's still shared to this day. It's something I remember. If somebody had done a proper restoration of the Jesus mural, I wouldn't care about it. I wouldn't know about it. But because this woman botched it so badly... (laughs) It's memorable and enjoyable. <laughs> That's what I think about. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, granted, granted, I've only read three of these. So they may get better. There may be better ones. <laughs> And I want to make it very clear, I'm not saying that people who read these books don't understand good literature or they don't have, you know, they're not intelligent or anything like that. I have read my fair share of absolute garbage books because I enjoyed them. People can read garbage books all they want, all day long, and they can even think that they're not garbage books. They can think that they're good books because they enjoy them. And what defines a good book if not that you enjoy reading it. Yeah, that it entertains you, that you find it enjoyable. I, I hate relaxing. I hate Catcher in the Rye. I I despise that book. But it's a classic. In the same way, there are plenty of, of terrible books that I think are amazing and I think are great books that most people would think are are dumb. And I'll make a list of those and post them in the show notes as well, if I remember, so that people can mock my terrible literature tastes. Uh, I mean, for crying out loud, we just said that my favorite movie and, and the only movie I think is worthy of that title for me is The Emperor's New Groove, a children's cartoon. <laughs> so clearly, I'm not the sole arbiter of what is good and bad. <laughs> Everyone is has their own opinions, and that's why there's a full range and many genres and... But my point, I guess, this is trying to be a positive. This is under my positive category. (laughs) (laughs) My my point is, I appreciate the effort that these authors put into these books. And I appreciate that you enjoy these books. And 
as much as I may grind them down because they're, they're not my, uh, cup of tea. I understand why people can like these. In reading these books, I can, I can see between the lines of <laughs> what I'm drawing, uh, and, and I can see why people like these books, and I can see why you like these books. Because again, like we talked about in the first episode, you're not dumb. By no means are you dumb. You're smarter than I am. Oh, I wouldn't say that. And you love these books. These are your favorite books. And I can see why you enjoy them. They'll just never be anywhere close to my favorite. <laughs> And I understand that and appreciate you reading these and embarking on this endeavor. So do you have any other any other thoughts before we move on to the quotes? Let me see. While you're looking that up, I'm going to pull up my first quote. No, I don't think so. I have some quotes, but I just wrote down the page number and my note. I didn't write down the whole quote. Oh, that's what I did too. Okay. So what we'll do is uh, I'll read one of mine, then you'll read one of yours, and we'll go back and forth and discuss them. Fair enough. Folks, I'm sorry. I tried to keep this episode to 30 minutes. It's looking like it's going to be an hour and a half. Um, listen to us in 1.5 speed. That's what I do to all my podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> it makes an hour-long podcast, 30, uh, 45 minutes. It's amazing. Uh, so my first one is on page six. These are not going to be good. <laughs> Should I be eating a muffin? No, the muffin has to wait till the end. Okay. Gotta do the pasty. <laughs> so, here we go. So this is after they, the uh, Carolyn, the character that's the worst in the book, tells about how she was a poor person that lived with her poor parents in a poor situation mm -hmm. and they didn't have any money and they didn't have food and all that. And um, <laughs> it makes me sound very unsympathetic when I describe it that way, but Carolyn's really the worst. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, mm -hmm. I feel like the author put this in here because she knew Carolyn was the worst and that she wants us to sympathize with Carolyn a little bit. No, she's the worst. Um, it is a sad story, Eve insisted. I'm sorry you had to go through that. I'm sure neither of you grew up on a bed of roses, either. A lot of people had it tough back then, and even tougher the generation before. Yes, and now people worry about being in an area where their cell phone reception isn't quite as strong, Phyllis said. I guess it's all just a matter of perspective. Again, just... <laughs> I don't know if they needed to compare how wussy, quote-unquote, people are in today's modern age with with her story, it just, it kind of cheapens it. I'm wondering how that lives up to now during pandemic times. We've had, I think, a lot of hardships that maybe like 20 years ago didn't quite face in terms of supply chain issues, shortages on items, having to make do, do without... Lots of people dying. That's a big, big thing. A lot of healthcare issues. So here's a question. Do you think somebody's going to write a pandemic cozy? Should we? No. Although, I will say, my end goal for this, this podcast is now that I will write a, a cozy under a fake name, and it will just be a mishmash of all of the dumb tropes that I've seen, and just, just release it. Take, take a mixing bowl, throw all the tropes in, or stir even, the pot. Or even better, 
bake you, out a cozy. Have you read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? No, I have not. I have heard about it. <laughs> What if we did a cozy that was basically like that? It would be the cozy verse, but then about middle middle through the book, some weird apocalypse happens. So Carolyn's talking about how this teacher's too thin, and Phyllis is trying to figure out what what cupcake she's gonna be, and then aliens come down. <laughs> it kind of seems like a librarian's episode. Oh, I would. Okay, this is. I, I'm gonna write this book. This is amazing. <laughs> We started thinking along these lines because since the last episode, I found an article that was talking about settings that there seems to be no cozies written that take place in these settings. And a few of them I thought we might be interested in writing. <laughs> but I, I'm just picturing the scene now where Carolyn and Phyllis are sitting on board the alien spacecraft. They're they're beamed up and they're now in the hold of this alien spacecraft and they're sitting there talking about how, you know, kids these days would have expected to be able to have their cell phones and if you brought a teenager up here they would be wondering why they don't have any cell reception because kids don't understand space. <laughs> Phyllis would be like, My son the sheriff, when he gets back Oh, I want to write this book so bad. <laughs> you know, NaNoWriMo's coming up. Yes, I am so excited for NaNoWriMo. That's an- something else I wanted to mention in this podcast. So thank you for bringing it up. I guess while we're talking about it now, we can just say, for anyone who has the desire to write a book, get involved with NaNoWriMo. And what is NaNoWriMo? National... <laughs> November no, no, no. novel writing month. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes, everything but November. It's said in November, the month of November, but it's National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo. So the goal is you you create an account, or you can create an account on the NaNoWriMo website, and then you put in your word count every day that you write. And the goal is to write 16 or 1,667 words a day, which will end up with 50,000 words which is technically a novella, I think, but it's what most people consider a novel. And you're not supposed to edit. You're not supposed to change anything. You're just supposed to write 1,667 words a day. And the goal is just to teach you how to write a book. Well, I think I might use the technique of copying the same, like, backstory intro of, like, (laughs) oh, his parents are out of town, and... He had an ear infection. Just like on days where I can't meet my word count, just be like, oh, I'm going to take this section and just copy paste. Oh, I made my word count. (laughs) (laughs) So you're going to be a bad author is what you're saying. There's an editing process. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. In that case, I'm just going to do what they did in The Shining and just write all work and no play makes Mark a dull boy over and over and over again and hit 16,000 words a day. And there we go. I mean, I did finish NaNoWriMo one year, and the book I wrote was just garbage. You have finished it more than one year. No, I've only ever hit the 50,000 one year. Oh, okay. So what's what's the quote that you got now that we've fully derailed? Derailed. We're trying to bring it back. What was one of your quotes? It's on page 160. Hey, I got grown kids too. Who think I'm a daughter and old fool? Mike doesn't think I'm daughtering. Well, we're in agreement on that. You're about as far from daughtering as anybody I know. 
Can we stop using the word doddering? Fine by me. And I have the question, I realize, what does doddering mean? <laughs> okay, so when you were reading this page, uh, I kind of forgot what, what context this was in. And I thought you were saying doddering, like D-A-U-G-H-T-E-R-I-N-G. Like oh. being a daughter. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, but this is doddering, D-O-D-D-E-R-I-N-G. Which basically, from from what I remember uh, of my freshman comp class, means old and, you know, you think of the, the guy with the cane uh, tottering down yeah. the, the main like, street. That's what I was thinking of, too, but couldn't even really tell. There were two, two different parts on page 191. Okay, now I see it. So, first one. They had loved each other just as much at the end as they had at the beginning, which in this world made them very, very lucky. And it's talking about a marriage. I believe it's talking about Phyllis's marriage with her first husband. Yeah, because he died, right? Yes. And I was thinking about that. I was like, well, I guess that's sweet, but shouldn't you love someone more at the end? Like, after you've lived married life together for years you have so much more like shouldn't love just keep growing i don't know i mean maybe it was just a very mediocre marriage not bad not good just eh. um and then on that same page i'm gonna do two because they're on the same page you're so fair-minded i figured you'd defend her carolyn said i can't though i think she and all the rest of the authorities are trying to railroad dana they don't care if she's guilty or not. All that matters to them is whether they think they can get a conviction. I'd hate to think that was true, Phyllis said. But as a matter of fact, the same thought had crossed her mind earlier as they were driving out here. You think that just because Mike is honest and devoted to his job, all of the authorities are. But it's not true, Phyllis. I hate to think about how many innocent people have been convicted because of the sheer blind stubbornness of the police and prosecutors. Phyllis had heard people argue the exact opposite, that no one would be arrested in the first place if there wasn't a good reason to think they were guilty. As in most things, the truth probably lay somewhere in between, she thought. So there's a lot in there, and that is a section that I think is a like offhanded or backhanded comment in regards to the prison system, and it made me think of Just Mercy, the movie and the book. And the, the comment by Carolyn that says, you're so fair-minded, I figured you'd defend her, made me think of you, Mark. Because <laughs> it made me think of maybe some times where I would have a retort like that of, well, you're just so fair-minded. I did find that very humorous because she's basically saying, you're very level-headed you <laughs> it's like accusing somebody of being too fair that's what it is and that's just i guess you can be too fair maybe but that's just such a weird thing to accuse someone of i'm, I'm trying to think of a parallel and i don't know if there is one i don't know or you're too selfish you're too selfless you're too this you're too that well but even then, saying you're so fair-minded is literally telling somebody they're balanced. You're too balanced. You can't be too balanced. Like, if you're balanced, you're in equilibrium. Like, there is no two. <laughs> Again, 
Carolyn is the worst. <laughs> Uh, my next quote is page 64. Uh, okay, so this is where they find the body. The scarecrow doesn't feel right, Phyllis said. What do you mean it doesn't feel right? It's too heavy, too solid, like it's stuffed with something besides paper and dried weeds. That's impossible, Carolyn said. Let me get it. She stepped past Phyllis, grabbed the scarecrow under the arms, and started to haul it upright. Then she gave a startled yelp, let go of the scarecrow, and stepped back so hard she almost lost her balance. The scarecrow dropped into the hay bale, tilted to the side, and toppled to the cement floor of the dog trot, landing with a solid thud. Phyllis, that's... that's not right, Carolyn said. Phyllis swallowed hard. I know. <laughs> it just goes on, but it just... The dialogue is such... It's so heavy-handed. It feels like what you would see on something making fun of these sorts of things. It feels like Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live dialogue. And maybe maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm too cynical. Maybe I, I'm too steeped in the cliches that this feels so silly to me. But I just, I giggle whenever I read these things because it's just so cliche. I think there are usually... A lot of cliches and cozies and cozies I have never known for a cozy to be taught in a literature course or to be considered well written well I mean by literary standards maybe maybe that can be a college class you teach you could get your your doctorate on cozies oh I would love to <laughs> yes please I could I could teach cozies. That would be wonderful. I am I, sure. I there are there are comic book cl- college classes. I'm there's sure Harry there's Harry Potter a, college I'm classes. Sure they they've had class. a college class on everything. I took a badminton college class where I got credit to learn the rules and play badminton. I thought you said Batman, and I was a lot, <laughs> I was a lot more interested in in a Batman college class. <laughs> oh, badminton. <laughs> this is how you make the voice. Um, that would be the final exam, being able to sneak into the room without the, the proctor seeing you, and then sneaking up behind them and saying, I'm Batman. <laughs> uh, okay, so do you have another quote, or can I just keep trucking no, through mine? No, I don't have any more. I was honestly surprised I had any, but I guess you've got me thinking about the book, at least in a few moments. Hooray for critical thinking. <laughs> uh, Okay. So, page 83. This is the dumbest sentence in the book. Okay? That, that is where we're at. This is the dumbest sentence in the book. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. And I'm so angry because my favorite character in the book says the dumbest sentence. Oh. Sam, the old guy. Yes. First off, I mean, he's one of the only men in the book. So, first, that's That is one to... of my theories. At one point, I want to read a cozy that has a male lead. Like Vishpuri. No, 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 no. Like uh, Quillerin from the Cat Who series. Hmm. I'm, I'd be up for it. I don't think that it's... We, we've discussed before that I think part of the reason that I do have trouble connecting is because it's not written to me. But I think I would still make as many comments about it. But I liked Sam. Sam was good. Uh, I'll give you that. Sam was a decent guy. He took care of everybody. He 
He was the man's man in many ways. He loved football. He refused to drink them flowers in his tea. Uh, he <laughs> woodworking, building yeah. bookcases, building book- bookcases. He he was the one to stand in front of the door to protect the women. She even goes so far as to say one time that his bathrobe is a manly brown instead of her purple. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But I like Sam. Detectives never run out of questions until they have the answers they're looking for, Sam said. No duh, Sam. (laughs) When you have the answers, you stop asking questions, right? People never stop looking for their keys until they find them. It's, okay. Basically. People say this all the time, and it kind of irks me. And you may have said this earlier today. Oh, no. Am I Sam? (laughs) You always find it in the last place you looked. Well, I mean... (laughs) Once you find it, you stop looking. But there's a difference because that's the point of that saying. That's... By saying that, you are telling the person, you're making a comment on the fact that you always find the last place you look because that's the truth. This... This just felt very unnecessary. Detectives never run out of questions until they have the answers they're looking for. It's... It's so obvious it doesn't need to be said. I have the same sentiment about the other <laughs> saying. Okay, okay. Fair point. Maybe maybe it's just an idiom that I found ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I think it's because she paints him as this good old southern boy, and it just felt like some ridiculous southern idiom. I don't know. But, okay. You've you've made me reconsider on that point. I'll I'll go back and think about that. Um, Page 129. This is clearly a spot where the author thought she was very clever. And I don't know if you agree that she was very clever. I have a right to be in this house, Carolyn declared. More of a right than you do. I overheard what you were saying about Dana. It's not true. Not any of it. That'll be up to the legal system to to determine, starting with the district attorney. He'll have to decide whether to prosecute Mrs. Powell. Don't you mean persecute? Carolyn said. I just... (laughs) I wonder if that's just Carolyn's character and if the author intentionally wanted a character like Carolyn who would just kind of have that demeanor, take that side on the situations to contrast with Phyllis's fair seeing both sides sam and eve's more like loyal happy positive seeing the bright side on everything happy-go-lucky everything's gonna work out so you're implying this was intentional this wasn't bad writing this was on purpose i'm just suggesting that maybe the author was trying to create a balance between the characters' demeanors and perspectives. Hmm. Maybe? There's not a ton of evidence in here that there's that sort of nuance built around these characters. Carolyn flip-flops back forth, back and forth between being uh, a judgmental, terrible person and then the person delivering all the charity for the town. Uh, Dana flip-flops between being a helpless woman that doesn't understand anything about what's going on and is completely helpless 
to um, someone with at least some autonomy. Um, even Phyllis goes back and forth between someone who genuinely seems to care for people and at the same time is, is talking about how people are too thin and too blonde to be school teachers. Everybody's kind of got that edge to them that Carolyn has. Carolyn just really, really digs into it. Well, the common theme amongst these people is their age, but Dane is not as old as Phyllis and her crew. Mm. The other common theme is that they're teachers, so perhaps there's a commentary on the perceived <laughs> attitudes of teachers. And as I have many educators in my family, I would not say that is a common demeanor that I, or perspective that I have seen. So you're saying teachers are not all gossips and judgy people? Correct. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that you got that on the record in case somebody misunderstood what you were saying. Uh, next quote is another example of the author clearly trying to make a... I don't know. It just it feels like she's trying too hard. Kind of like with the, the jam mystery. That was a big complaint I had is that so many times the author was just trying too hard. And if she had just written like a normal person, it would have been a better book. I appreciated the prosecute, persecute things. So. <laughs> Page 190. Mrs. Powell was released on bail, Phyllis reminded the detective again. She could have come back here to stay. Would you have tried to keep her out of her own house? That would be different. Since she's not here, I'd like to preserve the scene in its current condition as much as possible. It's not a scene, Carolyn said. It's someone's home. It was home to two people, Largo shot back, until one of them was murdered. <laughs> I'm almost wondering if at some point for a cozy that I haven't read before, if I should have you read it to me with your voices. Oh, okay. And then maybe I should read a cozy to you with the tones I perceive. So you think this is all just me <laughs> me reading into the book things that don't exist? No, it's just, it maybe is a little bit more emphasized in different ways. Mm -hmm. If we could do that, I would be, I'd be game for that. But I, I, in fairness, when I read these books, it's not that emphasized in my head. I'm, I'm kind of doing a dramatic reading so that people can tell who's saying what. But it, it does, it feels like the author is really trying to be clever with the, the the heel turns of those little statements it was home to two people at once unless until one of them was murdered it, it feels <laughs> that that would be that would be speaking of sitcoms or police dramas that would be the moment that the, the main character in csi pulls his sunglasses off it was home to two people take off the sunglasses until one of them was murdered. Are you yeah! referencing CSI Miami, Horatio Kane? I don't know. I don't watch those TV shows. Um, I just know them from the memes. Many, many years ago. I think I used to watch all those with my grandma. She was a huge CSI fan. CSI, Closer. We had a whole lineup. Well, look, when this podcast takes off and we have our network with uh, Mark's New Groove, the podcast... <laughs> And our Cozies and Kettles podcast. You can start a podcast about, you know, your your love affair with CSI. No. <laughs> hey, I'd just do it. 
you'd have one you'd have one follower at least. Of course I'd have to do all the editing for it too. <laughs> You're just adding more work to your plate. <laughs> well, I'm figuring at some point I could quit my job and become a full time podcaster. <laughs> oh wishful uh, thinking. <laughs> Okay, um, my last quote is a single line. They're at the funeral uh, of the guy that was murdered. And there's all this drama about Dana not wanting to sit with his family and them thinking that he, she's the murderer, blah, 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 blah. And then there's this line. I hate funerals, Eve said to Phyllis as they stood in front of the double doors of the chapel. Weddings are so much more fun. I don't think anyone describes a funeral <clears throat> as fun. Yeah. Who is at a funeral of a person that was murdered and says, while standing in front of the chapel doors, into the funeral, I hate funerals. Why couldn't this be a wedding? Yeah, goodness sakes, another funeral. Oh, I hate these so much. <laughs> I'd be a little more concerned about the person. I love funerals. They're the best thing. It just, again, it's these weird, and maybe that's supposed to be Eve's character. But it's just such an odd thing to have a character say that you're supposed to empathize with. I, now that I have finished reading it and you're saying this again, I'm wondering if it's supposed to be some sort of weird foreshadowing of Eve's announcement and speaking to the fact that this character has, has been married like four times already. I mean, they do reference something like that later in the page, but just just the abruptness of that... Can you imagine a character in a TV show being like, I hate funerals. That character would not be a sympathetic character. None of these characters are really sympathetic. That's the other thing that kills me, is that in these books, you're supposed to like these people. I have yet to find a single one of these cozies where the people are likable. They're all judgy. They're all self-obsessed. They're all focused on trying to build their own little fiefdom in whatever way that looks like, whether it's their, their winning the pumpkin muffin contest or developing the cafe or developing their small detective business. They have bad relationships with other people. They gossip about other people to, uh, to other people. And their, their lives are these weird mix of low-stress, low-drama things where the worst thing that happens to them is they cut their thumb making a cake. And yet, they're also the center of a murder, and they're the only people that can solve this murder. It's just... Ugh. These books make me frustrated sometimes. Well, I am sorry for the <laughs> frustration. I, I want... My goal for this podcast is for me and you together to find a cozy that we both enjoy. Yes. Not, not one that I begrudgingly read because you want me to. Not one that I throw across the room when I read it. One that you and I can both enjoy. Yes, that is the motivation and the goal of this project. And so this is a great transition to what we'll be reading next. Ooh, actually, before we do that... Uh, how does this compare to the other two books for you? Lower, I'd say this is like a three. Okay, so if you had to stack them up, Summer Jam or whatever that first book was called. <laughs> That's coziest. And then Vishpuri, then this one? Mm-hmm. I would agree, uh, except for... Actually, I don't know. I feel like Vishpuri may still be below this one. It wasn't as cozy but I think I enjoyed it more. I, I got no enjoyment from that book other than one laugh. At least in this book, it made me want pumpkin muffins. True. 
Uh, we talked about our guesses for who the killer was. You got closer. Mine was that uh, Logan would, in fact, be killed. There was too much foreshadowing for that not to be the mm-hmm. case. But I completely missed who it was, and I, w- I would never in a million years have gone for sugar-free mints as the murder weapon. Mm. So I guess kudos to Olivia J. Washburn for completely throwing me off on that. But before we introduce our next book, we actually have a fun little segment we're going to do here. Oh, yes. In the back of this book, there are a whole bunch of recipes, and one of the recipes is for pumpkin cheesecake muffins. And we actually took the time to make these incredibly complicated muffins that involve making a filling, then freezing the filling, then making a topping, and then making the muffins, and then adding the frozen filling into the center of the muffins, and then topping the frozen filled muffins with the topping, and then baking them. These are the muffins that were used at the time of the murder and in an attempted murder. Oh yeah, but do you remember, do you remember your biggest complaint about this recipe? My initial complaint? Yeah. That it only makes 18, and who makes only 18 muffins? Usually it's like a dozen, two dozen. It doesn't use the full can of pumpkin at all. Yeah, it didn't use the full can of pumpkin, which seemed rather wasteful. When I open a can of things, I like to use the full can, and since it only made 18, 18 why not just make 24 use the full <laughs> can of pumpkin and like build out the recipe yeah and at the end it says note if you have dogs add a heaping t- tablespoon of the leftover canned pumpkin to their meal i'm sorry but we're in pandemic times it's hard to find canned pumpkin and who's going to feed canned pumpkin to their dog rather than making muffins with it it's a super food <laughs> we can't be giving that to dogs they might become too super <laughs> Okay, so I'm opening up the muffins. Uh, oh, uh, one note on this before we review these is we did have to swap out the regular flour for gluten-free flour because Megan is, in fact, gluten-free. Um, not by choice. Not by choice. She loves bread. She's very angry that she's gluten-free every day. Uh, <laughs> I've gotten over I'll, it. I'll let you pick your, your muffin here. So he is not telling me he has made a specific muffin just for oh. me. <laughs> no, Megan. <laughs> This is your muffin. You must eat this muffin right here. That one. That one there, that's for you. Oh, this one labeled poison? Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we are opening the muffins. Uh, The foil pack thingy around the outside is not. So the first thing I notice about this muffin is the bottom is completely charred. (laughs) That's because they were foil, I think. And maybe... Well, I was thinking maybe these were the ones that were left in the pan, but I think all of them are charred. I think it might have been the foil wrappers. Maybe the recipe is meant to be made with paper wrappers. Mm. Does not specify. Going in for a bite now. So I enjoy the crumble on top. It reminds me of the Dutch apple crumble topping. It's basically the same thing. I'm going to be honest. I don't taste the pumpkin. These kind of taste more like coffee cake. It seems like light pumpkin to me. I've had other pumpkin muffins, usually from a box. Maybe they're artificially flavored, but they're very heavy on the pumpkin. You had had some other pumpkin muffins recently that were not gluten-free. I could not have them. How does this compare to those? That one had way more sugar in it, I think. 
and it was also, uh, I think, not real pumpkin. May have been. I can, could check the ingredients. That one I wouldn't say tasted like pumpkin either. It tasted like sugar and uh, whatever cream cheese filling was in them. It did taste better than these. But that's because it probably was way more sugar. Although we did put two cups of sugar in these, in addition to all the brown sugar. It's probably close to three cups of sugar in these. How would you rate these pumpkin muffins on a scale of 1 to 10? Probably like a 7. Mmm. I would give them at most a 5. Maybe an extra point bump because we did use gluten-free flour, so maybe a 6. Yeah, I was trying to give them benefit of the doubt with the gluten-free flour, and some of my complaints, I think, could be con- could be attributed to the gluten-free flour. These are not muffins that would win a contest? No way. These remind me of the Jiffy Box muffins. You know those little boxes that make like six muffins and they are super cheap. They're good muffins, but they're not great. Yeah. And these muffins that we made, per the recipe, probably the most involved muffins oh I've my made. Goodness, yes. And I don't even taste the difference. It doesn't seem worth it with the cream cheese filling or any of it. Yeah, I'm not going to make these muffins again. No, I think I'm going to go back to the Trader Joe's pumpkin muffin box. Yeah, I'm good with that. Okay, so what is the next podcast, or not, what is the next book that we're reading, Megan? Okay, the next book is The Turkey Trot Murder by Leslie Meyer. Oh, this book. And so I have held out my favorite cozies with characters that I really have connected with and enjoyed and cherished. So you've been giving me the the bad cozies? No, I've been giving you the cozies that I wouldn't mind if you ruined them for me. Mm. Just to introduce you to the genre and just see how this podcast goes. It is kind of like when you have that thing that's really special and you're you're guarded and you don't quite want to share it. Mm. I don't know if I have that thing, actually. Oh, no, I do. I, I have specifically not let certain people play board games that I like because I knew they would ruin them. And it's not that I think you would ruin them, but it's just... Also, I in my book club always discuss like to reread a book or not Mm. and when you reread it in a different time different space discuss it with different people it could then maybe tarnish your past reading experience and if you want to just hold that memorable you don't want to affect it anywho i have decided you have been so great (laughs) with these books and with this podcast and this whole project that we will start introducing my dearly loved cozies. So this is The Turkey Trot Murder. And I have read many books by Leslie Meyer. And I honestly can't remember if I've read this one. I have checked it out in the past from the library, but I don't know if I actually read it. Okay. And so it'll... We'll see once I start reading it if I remember if I've read it or not. But I do like the characters and I've connected with them. And so I think they're likable characters. I'm sure next podcast 
you may have other things to say, but... I mean, I'll give it a fair shake, like I've done with these others. It's... Oh, yes. I... I do not promise that I will pull punches because it's your favorite author. I am not asking you to. I think I think for a bonus episode at some point, uh, all, all joking about Patreon and things like that, I think as a bonus episode at some point we should watch The Emperor's New Groove and discuss it as we watch it, like review it as it goes. That would be wonderful. And you can just, you can make your, your comments about it then. Uh, that'd be one thing that I do hold very close and dear. And then that could be the pilot episode to Mark's new groove. Yes. The first new groove fan cast. Yes. And I will say, I don't consider Leslie Meyer my favorite author. I don't know if I have a favorite cozy author, but she's like in that pool. Okay. So it's not that she's not good enough to be your favorite, but you don't know if you have a favorite overall. Yes. I haven't identified a favorite overall. Okay. Well, uh, I guess that's the end. I guess we've, we've come through it. Uh, our episode lengths are wildly vacillating. I'm going to try to trim this down to an hour and 30 minutes, but we'll see. Until next time. Make yourself a cup of tea. Grab a cozy. And get cozy. Cozy.